You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. I think engaging the workforce, um, I think if, if we just Im- involve people from the beginning, um, in- involve people across the organization, like we talked a little while ago during this conversation, getting them to really be a part of creating that solution, and then being very intentional about how we communicate, providing the right resources and the right training so that everyone feels, or at least most people feel comfortable with the change uh, would be the biggest piece of advice um, I have to give. It's really, that's not a nice to have, it's, it's essential. So I would I'd put strong emphasis on that. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And it feels odd to talk about digital transformation sometimes in 2022 when smartphones and smartwatches are all around us and the talk of the metaverse is in the air. But at many organizations, important processes and functions remain stuck in the past, detached from the data and connectivity tools that power modern governments around the world. The cost of these outdated routines shows up in everything from internal efficiencies to sluggish development cycles on certain projects. And yet, replacing these established patterns in the workplace with new technology is a difficult task that continues to challenge even the most well-run governments. Today, we're going to discuss some of these challenges of digital transformation, especially from the people and culture side of things with LMI's Bettina Kalita, who is their director for business transformation. She works with governments at every level and has some good insights and tips on where leaders should be prioritizing their efforts. So let's jump right into it. Bettina, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I've seen LMI in my LinkedIn feed more. I've seen them in just the government technology landscape more recently over the past few months. Um, So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Tell me a little bit about what you're working on at LMI right now. Sure. Yeah. So I lead our business and digital transformation practice, as you mentioned, at LMI. Um, It's really focused on providing transformation support for our government clients and really applying a holistic approach to transformations with an emphasis on people at the center of these transformations. So um, some interesting things we're working on right now, um, supporting NASA through a human capital transformation, doing some work to support postal service on process improvement and policy analysis, and then some large army uh, system implementation programs that are going to have an impact on hundreds of, of thousands of users. So really leaning into prototyping human-centered design practices and, and bringing in strategy and communications and product development practices together. So some really exciting work and a, a culmination of, of all the things I've been really excited to work on throughout my career. It, you mentioned human-centered design, and it's one of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you, um, because something we talk about on this show is digital transformation in government is so much more than just technology. It is really incumbent upon the people and the culture that you're creating to drive these programs forward. I'm 
really curious as you're working with some of these organizations like NASA and others, what are some of the common barriers to success that you're finding that you're helping these organizations with as they're changing that culture and putting that emphasis on people? So that's a really good question. So um, I think with NASA and a couple of other clients we work with, they are like GSA, for example, they're super forward leaning. Um, They've implemented human centered design practices into their programs and have put out guidance and best practices. So um, that's a a really um, easy partnership in that case, where we just sort of bring in our experts and work with stakeholders across the organization to implement these on not only software development projects, but other programs Mm -hmm. as well. Um, with there are some barriers with um, some some of our other clients that haven't really quite embedded this into their culture. I think um, sometimes it's seen as a nice to have instead of a must, and there's mm. more of an emphasis on buying like a really neat technology or a tool versus thinking um, thinking through how to engage with users and how that plays a critical role in adoption and implementation. You've been doing this for a long time. Have you seen that at least sort of shift a little bit? I mean, mean, obviously everybody, I mean, me included sometimes, I'll admit it. I mean, everybody gets focused on that shiny object, that new technology that's out there. But I feel like over the past couple of years, we've seen government try to put a little bit more emphasis on that human-centered design aspect, putting on the the, the people that are going to be changing it. Is that something you're seeing? Definitely, definitely seeing that a lot, especially some of the language coming out of the executive orders driving, um, you know, requirements for user experience focus. Um, I think that um, our government partners are also looking at industry and seeing how human centered design plays a critical role in the success of technology programs. And they're paying attention and changing their practices as well. So I've definitely seen a big shift. Um, and drive towards um, human-centered design. And we also see it in a lot of the solicitations now that the government is putting out. So it's, it's really exciting to see that change. What do you mean by that? What are some examples that you're seeing in the solicitations? Asking for product designers, uh, folks with human-centered design um, certifications, for example, asking for product owners that not only have technical expertise, uh, but can also drive requirements collection through the lens of human-centered design. So th- those are a couple of examples I can think of. So something I think about when when we talk about culture change as well as technology adoption, and and I break it into like a, a crawl, walk, run type of type of strategy. And it feels very important that you want to gain momentum, right? You want to start. You want to start running downhill, but you, you want to you want to get there gradually. Is that something that you're seeing? I mean, talk to me about the importance around trying to get momentum when you're doing a large project like this. I would imagine that this is something that you're working with your clients on as well. Yeah. So I think uh, the speed to delivery and speed to outcomes uh, is a, it's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's it's an expectation that uh, most of our clients have now, and I think it fits in really well with the approach we've been taking on of prototyping or proof of concepts, which I know is more prevalent throughout the government as well. Um, I think it really, you know, reducing that time to delivery, reducing that initial cost, and also reducing the risk by trying out concepts and building things one step at a time is is really important. Um, I think it also gives our government partners the the flexibility to sort of alter their paths during a modernization, um, both as a result of changes in technology or as a result of changes in strategy, for example, 
or if they're going down a path where, where things are not working out, I think the the, the crawl walk run is, is a really good way to approach that um, as a part of these modernization efforts and, and really driving that culture too um, of having the ability to make mistakes and pivot and change so that we get to the desired outcomes that we're after. That's so true. I, one of the things that you said, make mistakes, I think of the phrase having freedom to fail. And, yes. and I, I'm curious to know, you talked about the, the pivoting across a, a program. When you start down this path, how difficult is it to, to pivot? And, and how often do you think government should be, or just leaders in general should be looking at some of these milestones to figure out, are we tracking on the right trajectory and do we need to make changes? How often should that occur and how difficult have you seen it to make changes at that point? So that's a great question. It really kind of depends on the organization. Um, so our, what do you, our pro- what do you, what do you mean by that? So internally to us, for example, we have, we have our own, um, rapid innovation arm and LMI called the forge, okay. um, where we do 30, 60 or 90 day prototypes to try out concepts internally for ourselves. So it's, it's very much built into our culture and also the way we deliver for clients. If we have to make a pivot, within LMI, um, which happens pretty frequently because we test out a concept or try something and it doesn't work, it's pretty easy mm-hmm. um, because of the flexibility we have in private industry. Okay. Um, I think with our government clients, it really depends on who your government sponsor is, um, what the culture of their organization is to be able to say, we failed or this doesn't work, let's move in a different direction. And also the way that um, that particular project, uh, the, the way the contract is set up, we have seen, for example, um, in some of for, for some of our civilian and Department of Defense clients that they provide funding for just a pilot program, um, and then depending on the outcome of that pilot, they move forward and put out a solicitation for a larger piece of work. Um, I think in those cases, it's easier to. Um, break away from something or say we failed. Let's move on. Let's try a different path. So when you talk about pilots, because pilot, I feel like pilots are something that we're seeing more and more within government, which I think is great. It emphasizes that speed to deliver. I think it drives more towards outcome-based approaches versus just procurement-based. Um, if, you're, if you're talking to a government leader, what advice would you give them if they're looking to drive a pilot around a, a particular technology or program? So I would say to look for um, a delivery schedule. So, so a lot of it to me is about speed, right? You're talking about that that speed to outcomes or speed to solution. Um, I think looking for a delivery schedule of less than 90 days, that's what where I've seen the most success, 30, 60, or 90-day prototypes where you can see value immediately and make a small investment to drive a larger strategy. Um, I think it's also important for government to look at vendors who have proof of concept or prototyping, human-centered design, and some of the other components we've talked about built into their culture and in the way that they do business internally as well. Um, And then just when you're putting together um, a solicitation, asking for a cross-disciplinary team that includes product owners, designers, um, developers, and then having the commitment internally from your subject matter experts to engage with that team um, throughout the process as well. I think that's the really important piece is having the internal resources to support these programs to provide feedback right away. 
um, to create those feedback loops uh, for development and also creating the excitement and in and, developing champions in the user community. So one of the things you mentioned there was kind of the horizontal aspect of, of being able to reach across the organization. And I agree with you. It, explain to our listeners why that's so important. Why, why do you need people that can kind of reach across an organization that can impact multiple different areas of that agency? Um, I think for a multitude of reasons, one, to make sure that you're building a solution and identifying the required personas um, across that organization so that it's not just one group of people bought in, but that a lot of different people can benefit from it. And I think um, also uh, just creating um, buy-in and especially if you're building incrementally, you're going to need to, you know, potentially access funding from different parts of the organization mm-hmm. as you continue to build. Um, so I think that those are a couple of the reasons why I think it's important to reach across. I think one of the things that I think about, and you touched on those, is it's great for government as well because you want them to be able to see value. And you touched on that. The, the more value that that they can see from an individual program, the better. And on the vendor side, the more you can expand across an organization to show value within different business units, different different personas, as you touched on, to me, it, it becomes the ultimate goal, which is to become stickier within that organization. So you want, you want to show value. And if you stay very linear, if you stay in your lane, you're basically showing a very linear value and you, and strategically, you're not really part of the equation. The more you expand, the more you're going to be, become part of that organizational strategy. And on top of that, you can help drive some of the strategy for them. You can be at the table when they're having conversations around where to go next. And that's, to me, that's huge for, for any type of vendor working with a government agency. That that's absolutely right. And also just to build on that, creating economies of scale, right? So you're touching on value across the organization. How can another organization across, you know, the same, the same government agency, for example, benefit from what one part of the organization has built? Um, I know, you know, budgeting, budgeting constraints are a reality that we live in. And there's a lot of opportunity um, to, to realize cost savings um, from, from collaborating across the organization. Well, especially in, in the environment that we're in right now, right? Everybody's looking to save as much as they can and still get as much value as they can out of whatever program they're, they're pushing. So in, in the environment we're in, I think now more than ever, you need to really look at that strategy to be able to influence as many people as possible across that organization. It's so, so important. Super important. And then also from a data access and a data, you know, data awareness perspective, a lot of times the, the uh, government partners we're working with, once we kind of start some of these efforts um, and start engaging with uh, stakeholders across the organization, we find out that they didn't even know about resources and data that mm-hmm. already existed. So removing those barriers, I think, is really important, especially as um, the mission of government becomes more and more complex. And like you said, um, we have to operate under these budgetary constraints. That's a great point. So when you come in to work with these organizations, is it easy to see some of the silos because you're kind of an objective third party sitting on top of it? Or is it just as difficult? And how do you help them break those down to leverage some of the, the data points and, and information that they have to, to move these programs forward? 
So that's a great question. I think because we try to start with a, the overall strategy, we don't mm-hmm. just look at a technology implementation and we spend uh, time also um, doing analysis on the different stakeholder or user groups. So personas, as we refer to them a lot of times, that are going to be using the system, that could benefit from the system, and that also provide uh, data into the system. It is um, a lot easier to see a lot of times what the silos are, especially as you get into conversations with some of our data scientists and other folks that are diving in, uh, looking at different data sets and engaging with users across the organization to get permission, for example, to access data sets. What do you think one of the biggest catalysts uh, would be to these silos being created within within the organization. I feel like just having access to data sometimes becomes so challenging and just knowing what what the person next to you is doing can become so challenging and we get in our own ways. And it's, this isn't even specifically a government challenge. I think even organizations, as much as they don't want to admit it, even in the private sector, we still have these challenges to me, it's beyond technology. The technology is there to to facilitate kind of seamless access to information. But from a culture standpoint and a strategy standpoint, how do you see these barriers being created? How are we kind of getting in our own way uh, is probably the best way to ask it. I think it's, it's sometimes, like you said, it's not the technology piece, right? Because there's some really good um, data platform solutions, data governance tools. Um, it's, it's really, I think, a lack of understanding um, and education a lot of times with how data is protected, how it can be accessed, and also the benefits of sharing data across organizations. Um, something that uh, we are working on and that we've implemented internally is a digital enablement training for folks to understand the basics of data, uh, data security, ethics, and and a lot of these other topics. I think that is helping us evolve as an organization. And I think that's something that um, can remove a lot of these barriers. So let's go back to something we touched on earlier around human-centered design. I feel like these concepts are becoming much more mainstream within government. They're seeing the the value in having these strategies ahead of time instead of just acquiring a technology and deploying it out without kind of thinking about how it's impacting every single person on this on this spiral. Why do you think it's becoming so mainstream in government now? And why do you think it might have taken so long to to get here? Um, I think uh, some of the policy, like I mentioned earlier, is one of the driving factors. Just one, of course. There, there's a lot of other uh, reasons. Um, I think because it's also been proven in the private sector that user experience and emphasis on that uh, leads to better solutioning. And I think also just our culture and our technology is evolving in a way that you know, people have expectations, they have high expectations on user, uh, what their user experience should be with the tools they use in their personal time, and they carry that into their, their work. And so I think that the government is starting to realize that in order to have higher productivity and have an engaged workforce, we need to have, you know, tools, modern tools that provide uh, a really good user experience. Um, do, you, do you think the the customer experience executive order that came out at the end of last year, do you think that's also um, certainly, certainly accelerated the focus or do you think it's really other programs beyond just customer experience that bring human centered design concepts into, uh, into the fold? 
I think that certainly shows that the government's serious to get or ready to get serious on that, right? Um, but I think it's again, it's the partnerships with industry. Um, it's what the expectations of their user base that are starting to be identified. But that's definitely a driver, I think. What are so when you're meeting with some of these organizations and they're and they're going through these strategies. What are some of the expectations that you're finding? I think we all have ideas, right? We're we're all citizens. We all engage with government. We all, I would imagine, have smartphones for the most part, and we're we're engaging in digital digital services within the private sector. So we understand some of those involuntary expectations. But when you guys sit down and are working with uh, with, with agencies and clients. What are some of the things that are coming out of some of the, the conversations that you're having around expectations, especially on the, not just the citizen side, but the employee side as well? So it's, it's the expectation to deliver um, value pretty quickly, um, but it's also an expectation, something that we've, you know, we've learned over the last few years is an emphasis on human-centered design is really important and the, the customers are asking for that, but also really building that into the prototyping and development process. So not having human-centered design hinder those activities, but really having them work closely together. And that's where we kind of get into talking about those interdisciplinary teams. And this is the way we present to customers is we need you know, those designers, those human-centered design experts to be working hand-in-hand with subject matter experts, developers, and data scientists. Um, but the expectation back to your question is, you know, really quick delivery, um, emphasis on human design, human centered design, but for that not to interfere with the technology or the development effort that they are after. How would it, so I'm curious now, how would it interfere? Cause we, I think of human centered design as kind of at the forefront of, of the deployment and really understanding not only how it needs to be deployed, but the different areas um, that it that it could drive value, how would it hinder it? So I'll give you an example. We, um, we had a client that um, we were doing a large platform development effort for, and um, they had a large appetite for human-centered design. And we had requirement sessions and um, all sorts of human-centered design exercises that were taking place in support of this. Um, and at one point, I checked in with the client, and the client felt that you know too much time had been spent on that, and okay. that they didn't want developers, for example, sitting idle. Um, so is it sort of like the analysis by paralysis type of? Exactly. Exactly. Now we don't ever take super long, you know, to to do this type of work, but depending on the client's appetite for speed, you have to be able to schedule those activities in parallel. You can't Makes have sense. long design um, sprints that are not, you know, coupled with development sprints as well. So we developed a, a new methodology around that called Humanly Agile that incorporates those two concepts, brings them together. Um, and then depending on the length of the effort, we uh, implement different human-centered design techniques that, that go along with with the agile development. Where do you see this this approach going in government? I, I think it's driving a lot of value now, and I think it's becoming mainstream. And I think ultimately, there's there. I don't see any negative to understanding human-based workflows and and how personas interact with the technology and the programs. 
But where do you see this moving into? Where's the the next generation around human-centered design in government? And is that something that private sector is already exploring and maybe it's going to come to government late? Yeah, I think it's going to be the automation of some of these these uh, these processes. So some tools already exist that you know collect information about users' experience clicking through a system, where they get tied up, um, what some of the frustrations can be. So a combination of the human expertise involved in that, but also some automation, I think, is going to start to become more and more mainstream as. And, and I believe that the focus will continue to grow um, when it comes to um, user experience. When you say automation, what do you mean? Because I feel like we have, I mean, we have a good amount of automating technology right now. And I mean, whether you look at like low code, no code or RPA, I mean, automation is there. But um, do you mean the kind of getting deeper into some of the triggers and the signals that are going to drive these automations? Or, or what do you mean specifically? The automation of that human-centered design analysis process and requirement oh, okay. collection. Yeah. So specifically that instead of, you know, having um, a person either observing a user or using different interview techniques, um, it might be a software. There's already some software out there that we're looking to um, use that we'll track that we'll, you know, we'll run a user through an exercise without human um, intervention, except for the user that's, that's going through it and sort of track um, how they use the tool and when, where some challenge areas are. So eventually focus groups are going to go the way of the dinosaurs, what you're saying. <laughs> I hope <laughs> not, but I think it'll be a combination of, of those tools and then the focus groups. So as we're kind of looking out into the future, and this is, to me, this is, kind of a fun part of the conversation. We get to prognosticate a little bit. You work with, you work with so many clients um, across a, a range of different technologies and, and different people sets. Where do you see, where do you see this industry moving towards? Where do you see some of the biggest challenges? Just talk to me a little bit about what you see in the future around government, government digital transformation. I think um, I see a lot more um, emphasis on, like we discussed, human-centered design, prototyping, agile uh, methodologies. I don't think that's going to go away. I think uh, some of the challenges are <clears throat> in the human capital space. I think the, you know, the war on talent is very real. And I think oh, yeah. our government partners are definitely experiencing that. So that that's an area, especially when you talk about... Uh, technology skill sets that I think, you know, our government partners are, are, they're putting a lot of thought into and resources, but it's going to continue to be a challenge. I think that's, that's very true. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's many leaders I bring on to this, uh, this, uh, this podcast that don't bring up the need and emphasis of talent recruitment, talent retention. And on top of that enablement, I think the, the war on talent is very real and I think we're seeing right now, especially in the environment that we're in, the war on talent is very real, even outside of government. It's it's oh, just yes. a challenge across the board. Um, it, it, if, I've heard you bring up human capital a, a few times. Is, the, is this an area of emphasis for you guys that at least what some of the programs that you're doing and what are some of the things that you're seeing, some of the trends you're seeing within human capital management in government? So yeah, we have, we have a, um, a service line with an LMI that I work very closely with, um, that provides human capital solutions to government. 
I think um, some of the the uh, the things that our government partners are challenging us with is how to provide tools that enhance that um, that employee experience. For example, mm-hmm. how to create equity in the hybrid work environment. That's another um, challenge that we were supporting the government through. Can I ask you um, real quick? So, so sure. I've had conversations around digital equity on this on this show. It's been more pertaining to citizen service delivery and digital mm. equity on that front. When you say equity for employees, <laughs> yeah, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that and what you're seeing. So certainly from the c- citizen perspective, um, we're actually doing um, a prototype right now with one of the health agencies on how to get, how to increase uh, benefit usage um, through digital resources for, for citizens. But more so what I was referring to is... <clears throat> For one of our civilian clients, they have a hybrid workforce. And um, because of their policies, they've found that sometimes the uh, fully remote individuals have less access to um, monitors and that sort of thing. And the expectation is for them to provide it at home. Um, So they're trying to find ways to provide resources to employees that have different statuses and that's difficult because they don't have the flexibility that the private sector has, um, to provide, uh, direct funding, for example. And then they also have to think about equity across different GS levels, for example, and, and, and partnering with unions and that sort of thing. So that's what I was referring to. How have you seen these equity issues impact the the outcomes that are being driven? Obviously with COVID, it, it was, a pretty dramatic impact in the form of one day you're in the office and the, the next day you're not. And do I have what I need to do my job? But as we've kind of moved past that over the past couple of years, we've taken a look at equity, especially on the employee side. Is there a direct impact into the programs and the services that are being deployed to citizens? Um, I can't see a direct impact to citizens. That's an excellent question. I wish I had a good story or <clears throat> you know, research to reference that. We're just seeing the need more internally from our government partners to create that equity, but no impact to citizens that I've observed. So as we close things up, what's a, what's a great outcome for government as we're looking to drive digital transformation forward? You're, you're seeing probably some of the best situations in government where everything is clicking and people are buying in and and culturally it's all sound. And you're probably seeing the opposite too, where the culture is, is not really adopting the technology or, or absolutely doesn't want to. And the funding isn't there and the technology is not being deployed properly. Um, What to me, when you look at a great outcome, what are some of the attributes that are really driving that forward is probably the best way I want to, I want to ask that. So I think when I think about attributes, it's a combination of all the things we've talked about from the technology side of things, the prototyping, the agile practices. Um, it, but really at the center of that, it's the focus on the people. So thinking first and foremost about who's going to be adopting this technology what change it's going to create in their life and what the, the impact is going to be for them. Um, and, and I hope that impact is positive and just being very intentional about how we're engaging those people and 
driving that culture towards, you know, innovation and adoption within an organization, but thinking first and and foremost about the people and, and the mission. And one example of that is an effort we're working on for a training system for one of our customers that impacts um, our, our troops, our soldiers. Um, and, you know, the, the technology of it is not an issue. Um, it's really making sure that we're building a product that they are going to use that's going to improve their experience and improve their life. Um, so th- that's really what I think are some of the most important things to, to think about. Any advice to, to leadership out there that are looking to deploy these programs, looking to more specifically engage their workforce in, in trying to drive these changes forward? I think engaging the workforce, um, I think if, if we just Im- involve people from the beginning, um, in- involve people across the organization, like we talked a little while ago during this conversation, getting them to really be a part of creating that solution, and then being very intentional about how we communicate, providing the right resources and the right training so that everyone feels, or at least most people feel comfortable with the change uh, would be the biggest piece of advice um, I have to give. It's really, that's not a nice to have. It's, it's essential. Um, so I would I'd put strong emphasis on that. I, I get caught in this trap all the time. And I don't know if you do too, but I get into things where I think because I'm so deep into it, there's sometimes assumptions made of the people yeah. around me that of course they just know X, Y, and Z, and we're, we're moving on to ABC. And I forget sometimes that there, there is even, even in brevity, there has to be some type of enablement for, for the people around you to make sure that you're all tracking on the right direction towards the right outcome. And all the context is brought into the situation. It it can be a challenge for sure. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we just think about um, non-technical users, for example. Um, I, I would group about. myself into that equation, by the way. <laughs> oh, you would. <laughs> so, yeah, myself included um, as well. But so we think about that audience, right? Or we, we think about that user base, but we're not thinking about technical experts in the way that they see things and all of the changes that they are experiencing mm-hmm. in skill set, in their industry, uh, programming languages, new tools, and how that might impact them or... I think it's really important um, in something I've learned um, working with uh, our digital uh, and analytic services. Um, it's important to think about that as well. Like you don't get caught in thinking just inside of the, the box that you're in and, and the things that you're concerned about. So that's a great point. Bettina, I, I've enjoyed this conversation and I can see why LMI has kind of risen to the forefront over the past few months. And, and I'm seeing you guys more and more. You're obviously doing uh, some great work foundationally within government. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience today? Well, first, I wanted to thank you for the opportunity and thank you for your time today. It's been a really uh, engaging and fun conversation. Um, I think this is a really challenging time for us as a country and across the world, but I think there's some really exciting opportunity. Um, The technology just keeps evolving at a faster and faster pace, but really it's the ability to improve people's lives that really drives me and keeps me excited about my job. So um, those are that, that's all uh, for me. And I just really appreciate being with you today. I love that. Thanks so much, Bettina. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you.
This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast, wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on Twitter at ShittestRayB or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.